Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sink or Swim podcast. We have again with us the two newer hosts, the fourth-year medical students. I'm Nick Petit. And I'm Vikram Patel. And today we're going to be talking about the pre-medical years. So us as fourth years, we're just kind of looking back and reflecting on our years as pre-medical students. Um, Both of us, just for reference, uh, we went right from undergraduate into medical school. So we'll be talking primarily about undergraduate um, and just like the activities and all that stuff. Um, And basically, um, we can't talk too much about what medical schools are looking for for admission criteria, but we have a couple of podcasts previously that discussed this a little bit. Yes, so the Sink of Swim podcast has two other podcasts that refer to this, and if you're looking for advice on admissions, refer to them. If you're looking for advice on life and what those pre-medical experiences can kind of bring to your medical education, then this is the perfect podcast for you. So Yeah, exactly, and some of the subjects are things like shadowing, um, volunteering, hobbies, academics during... Um, those pre-medical years. So uh, you wanna go ahead and get started? Yeah, I think the first topic I wanted to kind of discuss a little bit was choosing a community college versus a four-year college versus a university and how that impacts the experiences you get and even the effects it might have on the chances for getting into medical school. I know when I was in high school, I heard a lot about the fact that like, oh, you need to g- really go to a university if you want to match into medical school or the fact that if you if you don't go to a university, you're not going to get those experiences. So like, don't waste your time with a community college. Uh, with that having been said, I did actually go to community college, but my reasons for doing so were a little bit different. Uh, I did dual enrollment in high school, which is essentially a program which allows uh, high school students to attend college classes so you go there take classes with the other community college students and you take the same exams as them you attend the same classes as them and the, the classes count for your high school credit as well as college credit because you are taking that college class so when I graduated high school I had a year and a half worth of credits from college and I only needed six more months, one more semester to finish my AA degree. So I decided to just uh, complete the community college degree at that time and then transfer to university because it it would have made the transition much smoother than had I gone directly to university. So that's my story. Nick, where'd you go to college? Yes, I did a similar thing in high school. I did um, dual enrollment, but uh, after I graduated from high school, I went directly to university. So I had the four, you know traditional four-year uh, university. I'm like a super traditional medical student, right into college four years, right into med school for four years. And um, it's interesting that we both went to University of Florida, right? Go Gators! Yeah, go Gators! And um, not sponsored by the Gators, but go Gators! <laughs> um, so anyway, so yeah, it's interesting that we both ended up at the exact same university, we just had different paths. Um, for me, when I was in high school, I had the same thought that, you know, Vikram said is like, why would I go to community college? I'll get way better experiences with university. Um, and I think that is true to an extent. 
I think that like universities have a lot more to offer their students and a lot of programs and a lot of benefits to it. Um, but that doesn't mean like I've had friends like Vic Roman and friends that did other degree paths that went to community college first. And I don't see a single problem with that pathway either. I mean, maybe there's a, a, a few less like opportunities in the first couple of years, but you know, at least if you finish up at a university, I think you can get the most of that experience. Um, yeah. Do, do you think that, I'm just curious, do you think there were any setbacks starting in community college and then maybe having a shorter time at university? So I definitely agree that there are short packs and with going to community college in terms of experiences, I will say one thing, your grades will definitely thank you for going to community <laughs> college because the classes there did not compare at all to the level of difficulty that I experienced at a uh, university. I don't know if all universities are as tough as UF, but the classes at UF were definitely ruthless. And compared to my community college experience, which is where if you really like tried and you were somewhat smart, you could definitely get an A versus at UF where you can try all you want, but if you you need to be smart and then you need to try really, really hard. And even then, you may get a B or a C depending on what type of professor you have and if they don't, you know, adhere to what, what teaching styles you're comfortable with and if you don't use proper outside resources. So that's in terms of learning. But in terms of experiences, a university program just offers so much more because they have research funding. They have lots of labs that are funded by university, whatever the university is. They have all these programs for volunteering, whether it's for medical or non-medical purposes. There's just a bigger body, like body of students, first of all, as well as a more established program for whatever it is you're trying to go into. So for you, UF is one of the top institutions in uh, pumping out the number of pre-medical students. That's correct, right, Nick? Yeah, last I read the numbers, I think it was like number two. Not, not. this isn't necessarily a, a anything about quality as much as just pure numbers. So there's just so many students that come out of, I think it's like UCLA is number one, and then number two is UF tied with, I think, a university in Texas. But it really just shows you how many students are coming out of UF. So I will say one thing. The amount of opportunities are great, at a university, but the amount of competition is also much, much higher than what you would get at a community college. So, for example, if you wanted a leadership opportunity at a community college, there's not a lot of things going on, and you're easily able to like start a new group or interest group as long as you can gather other students. There's not a lot, not a lot of things going on. So if you find something in the community and you want to do volunteering and you can get other students or other people interested, you have a leadership opportunity right there. You can start things up. Um, actually, as, as someone who attends a newer medical school, I think me and Nick have both benefited from not having established programs so that we could take part in those leadership opportunities. For example, Nick, can you elaborate a little bit more on, you know, founding an interest group? Yeah, I mean, so this was like medical school, but I founded the anesthesiology interest group here. So I think that was like a nice thing to put on your resume. And I imagine that in a community college, you could probably do something similar. Whereas I'm pretty sure like the 
medical stu- like medical student interest group or whatever it's called at UF was like already established there for like years and the the competition to get into leadership opportunities for those was like way higher than let's say you're at a small university or community college yes so that's that was exactly what i was kind of trying to get at and but i will say this having come straight out of high school you're not going to be in the mindset of thinking about making these sorts of programs or doing these sorts of things unless you're one of those really spectacular people with a goal in mind that there's this one thing you really want to do it was only when i came to the university that i actually experienced what a pre-med you know uh cv looks like really i just thought that you needed to have good grades and that's and then have some volunteering uh at the hospital it was only after I came to the UF, came to UF that I realized, oh, that's that's not even enough. That's that's not nearly enough. Everyone's trying to do shadowing, doing research. I didn't even know you could actually participate in research as an undergrad until I came to UF, which is interesting because a lot of people have friends who are either in you know doing pre med or doing in medical school or they have physicians, but having come out of a family with no one in healthcare and also being an immigrant we didn't have the connections so i did not really know anyone who was attending medical school at the time uh, or interested in pre-med that was around me so i never really got that exposure until i came to the university and then i and then i meet all of these people and i have some friends and that have and mentors that actually guided me to saying like hey you need to have this this and this um and it's just, it, it was great that I found not only the opportunities, but also the mentorship that I needed at UF. And I don't think that if I had continued at a smaller college that I would have really had the same amount of opportunities. Uh, maybe the mentorship I would have gotten, but I, I don't think the, th- the possibilities that we had at UF are really possible at a smaller institution. Not to say that you can't come from a smaller institution into medical school. It's all about what you kind of make of it. So you don't need, like there's a thousand and two opportunities at UF. Doesn't mean I took anything more than three of them. Um, So if you had a smaller pool, you're still only going to do a few of them. So you can do a few things and do them really well, and you will still get into medical school. But it's it's just about having the options. Yeah, for sure. And um, I want to mention something else that I found really interesting. So like when we came here to medical school, um, the students here came from either like their local universities or like the like UF being a large state university and also some private universities as well. And there's a huge price difference and we could have a whole, you know, podcast about that alone. But um, just like my opinion, my experience, I would say, you know, unless you're getting full ride scholarship, you're not going to get that much benefit from paying way more tuition for like a private university, let's say compared to like a public university. So if, if money is something you're concerned about, I mean, that's also a consideration to uh, take into this. And Vikram, I'm sure you could speak about community college being a community college is going to be more affordable as well. So if you come from, you know, a lower income family or you just are, you know, you don't have the money to afford a university and you don't want to go into debt, things like that. And medical school, you're going to have mo- most of us will have debt graduating from medical school as well. So do you have any thoughts on that as well? 
that's actually one of the biggest reasons I continued to attend the community college to finish my AA degree because under the Florida scholarships, as long as you have uh, good grades, they will cover for your um, undergraduate expenses to a certain extent. And at community college, that meant that everything that I did there, so all of my tuition was paid for. It wasn't actually even that much. It was a fourth of a cost of uh, University of Florida. And even that was all covered. So I really just wanted to save a little bit of money when I could before attending medical school because although university, uh, uh, although Florida schools, especially the Florida public schools are typically very cheap, uh, especially if you're getting good grades and can take on those scholarships, then it, it's really not, uh, it's definitely doable, but going on to an out-of-state institution i have friends who have two hundred thousand dollars in debt who are in two hundred thousand dollar debt only from going to an out-of-state california school that they wanted to go to and then that with the living expenses and everything added up for four years added up to two hundred thousand dollars so I just I just thought that it was a little too like little excessive for my own taste, and I finished undergrad in less than fifteen thousand um, dollars. So I thought it was a great save on like money. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I mean, again, everybody's situation is a little bit different, but I if, like if I were to go back and tell somebody, you know, applying to college, if anybody in that stage is listening, or maybe you're at community college right now, looking at a university, take price into consideration for sure. Uh, we have classmates from private universities, large state universities, and their local universities as well. And honestly, I haven't noticed any performance difference based on what university they came from. Like, have you? I mean, I well, can't exactly say, I, but like... I don't think it's the university or where you want that would make the difference. The question we would have to ask, which I don't have the answer to, would be how many people who went to those places were admitted compared to people who went to a university uh, or like great universities and were admitted. We'd have to kind of look at the percentages and the attrition rates to really be able to compare it, which again, I don't have those answers. Um, I do have a question though, Nick, what do you think about people who go into universities or colleges because they are deemed easy compared to other universities? So for example, um, I won't name the particular university, but I have several friends in central Florida who decided to stay in central Florida and go to a university there because they thought that they could have a better GPA compared to going to UF where it's really competitive. There's a lot of weed out classes. And even if you're working really hard, you could still do poorly versus if you go to that particular university, a lot of my friends who went there like prior to me having gone uh, to university said that if you go there, you can kind of make your way through and it's not that tough uh as long as you do all on the mcat you could definitely keep your like as long as you try you could definitely keep your gpa at like a 3.8 or above without having to work nearly as hard so what do you think about people who kind of take that into consideration um that's a really interesting thing i don't know if i had anybody in my experience who actually like thought about that i know i i didn't when i was like in high school i didn't think about what's the easiest university i was just like 
what's the best cheapest university I can get into and you know and I just went based on that um but I, I don't know my gut reaction is that's probably bad advice <laughs> um for a couple of reasons uh the first one is I would say you don't know how hard or easy the university is going to be until you get there like first off so like I don't know if that's if that's actually true information what you're saying um, but also you're going to face challenges later on in medical school anyway like no matter what medical school you go to it's going to be difficult uh, different level of difficulty for everybody but I would just say you know trying to go the easy route is usually not not the best uh, the best option for that what, what do you, would you agree with me or what do you think so I will say this, the the friends who did go to uh, that particular university, their GPAs were good. Um, they managed to have excellent GPAs. Um, I think maybe even better than the ones I had. And I, I was in the, I was 3.7, oh, above 3.7. And they managed to really have a good GPA. But when it came time for MCAT, they all kind of bailed. They started studying and then they uh, either decided to, not take it or just thought that medical school that either the MCAT would be too tough or they didn't want to do medical school and that's just one of the things you kind of mentioned like there's going to be difficulties ahead of time so even if you go to a university that has quote-unquote easier classes or easier grading um, it is really tough to study for the MCAT if you don't understand the material. So you're going to have to learn the material. But in one sense, I, I kind of do wonder that going to a university that's like insanely tough may not necessarily be needed to get into medical school. You can go to any university, essentially, and get into medical school. It, it's about what you do there. But I do wonder. There are like Reddit posts that talk about students going to Ivy League schools are really, really top schools, and they're out there competing with students who are brilliant people, and it's graded on a curve. And the fact that they might really understand the material well compared to another university or college that they could have gone to, and then still get a B or a C, and when you apply to medical school, they don't look at they kind of take a take into consideration where you went, but not that significantly. But they do look at, oh, this person got a 3.4 GPA. That's, you know, versus our average is 3.7. So if you go to a really tough university like and get a 3.4, I think it would be better if you would go to a moderately difficult university if there's such thing and get a 3.9 instead. That's just my two cents. I mean, that is interesting to say, uh, again, like we can't really speak about, yeah. you know, what the admissions people are looking at, but, yeah. um, I think it's an interesting take. Um, I, I personally wouldn't do that. I, I disagree. I think like, don't go the easy route, but, um, I mean, that's just my opinion, but so anyway, I think, I feel like this is a nice transition to like academics in general. Um, so do you want to talk about like GPA and the MCAT and that type of thing um we can discuss it a little bit yeah, um, just a little bit you know? so in terms of gpa and mcat obviously we'll talk about experiences going forward and what you should be doing in medical school but you have to keep in mind that if you have a low mcat and a low gpa the chances of getting into me medical school are going to be lower no matter how great your experiences are because 
they look for competence first and foremost, and then they look for other things such as cultural humility or service or enthusiasm for volunteering or just being a great human being. So all of those things come second after you have your foot in the door with a good application, which includes a good GPA and MCAT. Because even if you have all of those things, if you don't make it out of medical school, which is very rigorous, it's the hardest thing I've done so far. It's much harder than any of my college semesters. It's more information than probably two or three of my college semesters combined into one like semester. So it's really tough. So they, they want to make sure that whoever comes to their um, medical school is going to come out a physician. So that's going to be the first thing. So don't let your GPA and MCAT be affected. With that being said, you should be scheduling your classes in a way as well as studying effectively in a way that allows you to do things other than just maintaining your GPA and MCAT because that should not be your goal. So what I'm trying to get at is if you're taking six class science classes that are notoriously tough and you're able to get an A in all of them, but it's, it's taking all of your time and you're not doing anything else, that also may not be enough to get into medical school because they will look at other things that you have done during medical, uh, during undergrad. So I think maintaining a balance is good, but ultimately don't let your GPA and MCAT deteriorate because even if you have a great application, those things are going to really kill your application. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to say. I think, you know, you, you, need, you need to express a baseline level of, um, a baseline level of like... Academic um, competence. Yeah, academic competence. That's a good way, a good word. Um, but at the same time, you have to, there's other parts of your application and it's not only about that. So I would say, you know, primarily focus on GPA and your MCAT score. And then don't forget the other stuff that you also need. I have, um, I'm not going to say any names. So there's a friend I have and he had a better MCAT than me, like excellent MCAT, like very high 90 something percentile, like high 90th percentile, something like that. GPA was like 3.9 something. I forget just excellent student. Um, but he didn't have a lot on his resume and he applied to more schools than I did. And he got not a single interview. And I, you know, I talked to him about it and it was because of his lack of, um, experiences and, and time. He didn't really express that he really wanted to be a doctor. So, I mean, I think both are really important, but at the baseline, you have to, you have to show that competence academically. No, I agree. So with that having been said, do you want to talk about why someone goes into medicine or, or why even do these experience? What's the purpose of having these experiences in medical school like why is that a requirement why not just take someone who has a good who has good grades has shown a strong work ethic by maintaining a good gpa has a good mcat shows critical thinking ability why not just take that student into medicine yeah so again not admissions people but um it's really about like showing the other parts of you um besides just like your academic abilities. So physicians need other pieces to them besides just being smart and good test takers and all that stuff. Um, so that's the first part is, is showing, you know, leadership skills that you care about your community organization that you can balance, you know, 
working hard in school and maybe working a job or volunteering once a week and really having that like time management skills. And I think the other part that people kind of forget about because they're so like gunning for medical school is you have to take into those experiences. Like, is this something that I actually want to do with my life? Because it's a it's a large commitment to go into medicine. And I've heard many times from many students, they, they finally make it to med school. Right. And then they're kind of like, wait, I actually don't like it here. And it's like, well, really, you probably should have done a little more reflection a little earlier, but instead you were kind of stuck into checking boxes and working so hard that you didn't take time to, to use the experiences, like maybe shadowing or volunteering or whatever to see like, can I see myself doing this? You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what do you think? No, I, I agree. So I get a lot of undergraduate students as well as high school students who want to become a physician practice and a lot of these students are also immigrants like me and they don't really have anyone else to ask and having come from Africa or India or what have you they're in the mentality which a lot of the my friends have which is that you need good grades and that's all you need to get into medical school and one of the first things I say is that you need to, the extracurriculars and volunteering section all of that is necessary not even just to check a box it's necessary for you first and foremost it's not for anyone else first of all it's for you to be able to explore the field of medicine so shadowing as well as volunteering in a clinical setting allows you the opportunity to see how medicines actually perform in the u.s what is healthcare like what does a physician do what is what are their roles if you watch Grey's Anatomy and become enamored with becoming a physician. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, it, unfortunately, real life is not like that. So it, our clinical rotations are definitely nothing like Grey's Anatomy for the most part. Um, so actually getting to experience it, it's much more boring, to be honest, uh, depending on what you consider fun. But the fact that you actually get to be with a physician, you get to work in a hospital or a clinical setting allows you to explore that and then see if this is something you want to dedicate the rest of your life to. Because it's a long road. Four years of undergrad with four with possible gap year if you need it, um, along with four years of medical school and then a three to seven year residency is a long road for anyone with a lot of debt. If you quit halfway, you're going to be in a lot of debt with no ability to kind of pay it off because if you quit at second year in your second year of medical school, they don't give you a degree for f going halfway. So, you kind of wasted a lot of your time and money um, into going into this field. So, you should better be sure that you really want to go into it. So, that's what that's the first purpose of doing this. The second is to really kind of showcase not even just why medicine, but to kind of showcase your personality, what you're interested in, what type of people you want to work with, what type of people you want to help. Um, but before we kind of jump onto that, I think this, you know, the why medicine is a very important question that every undergraduate student or every pre-med student needs to really ask themselves and get a firm answer. You really don't know what becoming a physician is like unless until you're there, but you should have a good approximation. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I feel like 
kind of like I was saying before, somebody, especially like, so I never had this, but a lot of people that I've talked to were like, oh, my parents told me I'm going to be a doctor since I was like coming out of the womb. Right. <laughs> and I mean, we kind of joke about it, yeah. but it's like, I was like, wow, like I didn't personally have that happen to me, but they kind of get here and they're like, oh, like I've been following somebody else's journey, maybe instead of my own and what somebody else wants for me. And I don't know. I don't think I would be able to get through it if I was doing it for somebody else and not me. Um, and so I would just say like, that's one reason like you shouldn't do it. Um, so I would just, I think it's really important to do that reflection and, and your experiences as, you know, an undergrad or pre-med or whatever, think, you know, is this really something I could see myself doing in the long run? No, I, I definitely this, agree. This is also coming from, I think both of us, you know, we've had a lot of struggles, but at the same time, like we've really enjoyed medical school. Like, would, wouldn't you agree? Oh, I, I agree. I, I think we are in the minority there. Though I will say we are probably in the minority in saying that we have enjoyed medical school. But to be very honest, I have had fun throughout each of the years that I've been here. First year had its own difficulties, a lot of difficulties. And we'll be talking about those difficulties in an, an upcoming podcast. So make sure to listen to that. But um, there are a lot of difficulties through medical school. Anyone who says that it's not tough is either a genius and they don't need to work as hard or they're lying. But I know we've both struggled and through getting through to everything because you have to maintain a balance in your life, hobbies, as well as just the grueling work that a medical student require, like, is required to do, essentially. And not even just required. The work you do to become an excellent physician in the future, uh, it pays off, but it's a lot of work. And to manage that with going to the hospital, with studying, and while doing research, if you're interested in doing that, is insanely tough. And then to take time out of that to, for your hobbies, for your loved ones, family, friends is really grueling. And kind of these experiences that you're doing in undergrad kind of prepare you for balancing academic work along with other hobbies, interests, as well as maintaining a balance. So what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I agree. I, I had a, while you were talking, I had a really interesting question i just wanted to hear your perspective yeah. on um what do you think because we're kind of talking about like we've enjoyed medical school and stuff and i could imagine somebody's like oh i'm just gonna get through it to the end and all that stuff what do you think about like medicine as a passion versus medicine as just another job so i know a lot of people who for them medicine is a job um and they're successful uh nothing against that and i know some people for them medicine medicine is a passion as well um, unfortunately, as the years go by, like the physician that I know, the older they get, uh, the less ones I know that are passionate. Uh, the, a lot more of the younger physicians are passionate about what they do. I don't know what that says about burnout, um, and declining in passion in medicine, but I will say this, the ones who are passionate almost always tend to be happier, or at least in my experience, when I've seen them, they're very happy they're doing things for their patient not to say that the ones who treat it like a job are not doing a great job and they don't care about people they do but i think the ones who have a passion for medicine seem to be happier by themselves in this field and to be very honest for me it's a passion i did not come into this for the money or the respect 
which again it's nice and i'm glad it's there which is one of the you know it's a component of the overall picture of why i wanted to go into it but at the end of the day i really wanted to help people and it's a very stimu uh intellectually stimulating field but i don't think that i could do this uh, without having a passion for it because it's so tough honestly like medical school is really tough and residency is going to be even worse so to kind of go there do 24-hour calls and do all of this stuff like day in day out and to just treat it like a job i i would i would hate myself um like yes it maybe it makes more money than a lot of other fields but i don't know if that would be worth it for me yeah, I agree. I could I couldn't do it if I didn't like it. I mean, there's so many times where I'm like, "Oh, this is really frustrating and this shouldn't work this way and this is unfair, whatever." But at the end of the day, you got to enjoy it. Um I also think it's kind of funny like when people I feel like there's like two kinds of people. There's the people who talk very highly about like the money and respect associated with it and are like, "Oh, I'm doing it for the money and respect." And there's the people who just completely ignore it, right? And I feel like it's probably better to be somewhere in the middle. Like take that into consideration. Like physicians are highly paid um, and there's generally a respect for the job. So, I mean, to completely ignore that is kind of silly, but at the same time, like do what you like. Um, and just another uh, question, I'm curious to hear your opinion. Do you think that the passion for medicine is a choice or do you think it's kind of just natural and just, it's just organic, it's, it, it just kind of happened? I think it's both. I think for me, it happened, but you have to keep it alive. So it does. It, it will fade away if you let it. And again, I'm not a physician yet. I'm not. E I'm not a resident yet. I have only been doing this as in the capacity of a medical student. But actually, let me give you an example. I don't, this may be going off on a tangent, and not to brag, but I hope this can. You know, help undergrad students and maybe someone will do this for their patients so i had a patient who i can't obviously can't say names or any identifying information but i had a patient in one of my rotations who was diagnosed with stage four cancer at the time of like right after their admission and until then they were had been very healthy but they had not seen a physician for a while and so they presented with just belly pain and were diagnosed with stage four cancer so i had talked to them and although i was on a consulting service so this was not even my primary patient we were seeing 20 patients in our consults but this was the you know it was a very sad case really um and his 49th anniversary was coming up in two days so I talked to them about it and, and the patient eventually thought of it, so dis discussed it with the family and he said, I'm, I'm going to try for chemotherapy, not, not because I want to, but because I want to make it to my 50th anniversary. So that was his goal in life. So even if it wasn't curative and again, not to talk about what happened to the patient, but I really like this impacted me because I just recently attended my grandparents 50th anniversary and it was a great affair and to kind of see uh, this couple in dire straits one year before their 50th anniversary was really sad and 
while they were in the hospital, they weren't going to have anything for their 49th anniversary. So I, I decided to kind of like get them a card, get them a little nice little plant uh, with a nice little message on it. You know, like happy 49th and early happy 50th anniversary. Uh, I won't be there, but I'm sure it'll be great and something like that. Again, that's a small thing. That's nothing big. That didn't require too much of my time. It, it, a little bit of my thought, like, you know, you just have to think about your patients for a little bit, not just treat it as a job. Um, and so I just went to Publix, bought the card, wrote the uh, message and gave them to him. He was almost crying. And to be very honest, it was one of the best gifts that I've ever given. I've given gifts to my friends and family, but... They were never in need of it as much as he was at the time. And I think he he just really felt cared for at the hospital. And I think we built a really great connection. But like they were really happy that I brought that. And again, it's such a small thing. But you're one of the few people that are actually able to do that. Not even just as a medical student, but as a physician or a nurse or anyone in healthcare. Because these people are very vulnerable and they're in a very sad time in their life because no one wants to be in a hospital for the most part. Um, so just like doing things like this kind of makes you realize why you're in medicine. And yes, like the diagnos diagnosis and all that part is very uh, intellectually stimulating, but this is really what keeps the passion alive for me anyways yeah for sure and and i think i'm sure you'd agree with me as a pre-med you should be maybe you know you don't have the same opportunities but you should be trying out these different things and, and putting in that extra effort for patients and things like that to see if that's something that's like really important to you wouldn't you wouldn't you say no i i agree and the sooner you start doing this the more fun you'll have is what i've noticed um that day was a great uh, I liked it I like doing something nice for other people and the more you interact with patients and the more you really start learning about them and start seeing them as people instead of cases you have a lot more involvement in their case you also have a lot more personal attachment which some people kind of go off and say like oh you should not be attached to your patient but I, I really don't agree with that sentiment. Um, I think it's okay to be involved as long as you can still be professional and objective when looking at their physical case. I think it's very important to know them as people because sometimes that'll help you not only make the best choices going forward, but kind of help, help you connect with them so that they will comply with whatever plans you've come up with. So, but honestly, for me, it's just a lot more fun when I'm actually talking to patients and getting to know them besides what complaint they came in with. So personally, I've started going to afternoon rounds, which is when I go see the patient in the afternoon, not just to see how they're doing medically speaking, but that's my time when I got to know them. Like, hey, you know, I really don't know anything about you and I'm involved in your care. Tell me a little bit about yourself so that I can understand you. Um, and then I've learned so many interesting things about my patients and they trust you. Like after they tell you a little bit about themselves, they trust you a lot more and they're willing to give you a lot more information after that. So I'm not saying that it's medically irrelevant either. Um, and as a physician, you don't have time to do this for all of your patients. It's just not feasible because you have such a high volume. 
But as a medical student, this is something I can do and something I've loved doing. So as a physician, there's going to be things that you'll be able to do in your capacity as a physician. So I think you can keep the passion alive. Um, I don't know if you can create that passion. Um, for me, it's kind of been there and then I've just kind of continued it. But I know it can fade if you allow it to. Yeah, it's probably somewhere in the middle, right? But I think I think your story was awesome. Um, I think it really represents um, why a lot of people would go into medicine, right? Like those types of moments. And so, you know, I don't want to gloss over though, like the bad parts, I yeah. guess. So like, what do you think are some reasons not to go into medicine? Or like, what are the bad parts that maybe are less talked about? I think no one understands really how grueling it is until you get here. It's really, really, really hard. And the thing is, it's sometimes isolating. It feels like you're in a sea of people that don't care about you. It's sad to hear that, but when you're moving from one rotation to the next without being able to make any meaningful um, friendships, because you're, you're with new people every month in your clinical rotations. Um, sometimes all of your friends are kind of in different places. So you, you might not even have your friends around. If you're away from home, definitely not with your family. If you're single like me, it can be very isolating to kind of just be surrounded by people every day and yet feel alone. Like not really have friends or family um, so I think that's the worst part of it, especially for me. And, and even intellectually, it's draining. It's like you do so much and then there's always more to do. And it, it sucks oftentimes, which is why if, you, if you're not doing it for you, it's going to be tough. Yeah, I agree with that. I think like, I think it can be very isolating for sure. Um, I think it's also hard on your life outside of medicine. You yeah. know, like you're kind of like, as an undergrad, I, I felt like, yeah, there's difficult times, but at the end of the day, like I had time for people outside of school, like family, friends, etc. And in medical school, I felt that challenge, like my time stretched more and it was harder for me to like reach out to those people. And I think that's the hard part is like, you can't just stop life and do medical school for four years. You know, it's going to keep happening. Um, yeah, I think that's really great. And, and I would just say like, as a pre-med, think about these things really hard and if this is something you're willing to do. I, I know you kind of uh, mentioned the fact that, you know, you've, you haven't always been interested in medicine. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to go into medicine and how you kind of explored the field? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of bringing me back to, like, medical school interviews. But um, I don't know. For me, like, I didn't go into college interested in medicine. Um, I kind of came because like, to be honest, in high school, if you, if I went back to my high school self and I was like, Hey, you're going to be a doctor one day, I'd be like, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely, definitely not happening. Like that's too long. And why would I do that? And then like, I got into college and I realized like, I think I was like, I started as an engineering major and it just like, to me, I, it didn't fulfill that passion, um, that we kind of talked about like that natural passion. Right. I really like solving problems. I really liked learning science, but I wanted to, and this sounds kind of cliche, but I really wanted to work with people and help people. And 
I realized that I can't do just like a desk job. It's just, I wouldn't be happy about that. And I don't feel like I would make a difference doing that type of thing. And I wouldn't be able to put in the full effort and my full abilities into a job like that. How did you explore the field? So how, like, was there like a particular aha moment that you had that really interested you in medicine? Or did you kind of just like see someone or did you have like a particular experience or volunteering or something that kind of made you interested? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've always been, so we have a faculty member uh, who, who says like you can have an aha moment or you can have like a slow burn, right? Um, the aha moment is like, in that second that you experience something, you're like, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. For me, it was much more of a slow burn. Um, and really what I did was I thought about it, just a lot of reflection about my values and does it align with medicine? And then I got myself involved in things that one, I thought I would care about. And two, that would like show me what the medical field is like. Things like clinical volunteering, uh, shadowing, physicians and just like honestly talking to people like talking to doctors and saying like what's the hardest part you've gone through what do you think are the challenges and what do you like about this would you do it again and just hearing everybody's different perspectives about it and realizing like is this something that i could see myself doing long term okay so that's great and i know you brought up the aha moment versus the slow budding interest i just want to point out that a lot of people you know kind of write about the aha moment in their personal statements or what have you in their applications. It's totally okay and it's great if you had an aha moment that really made you interested in medicine. But I will say this, no aha moment is enough. Like one moment is not enough to base your career off of. It's great to ignite that passion. Like you're interested, you know, you hadn't considered before, but now you something happened and you're like, I wanna become a physician. That's great. But you still have to explore the field to make sure that this is actually something you want to do. That moment alone is not enough to justify why you want to go into medicine. So you should still do volunteering in clinical settings to see what the field is like, to shadow physicians in any specialty, really, to kind of see if this is still what you thought it was and if this is something you're willing to do. Um, so aha moment is great. But you need to follow that, back that up with the other experiences to reinforce that passion um, versus a slow budding interest, which is also fine. Not, not everyone needs an aha moment. For example, I was one of the people who does not remember when I wanted to become a physician, but it's always been there. Um, I'm also one of the people who have never said that I wanted to be anything other than a physician. Even when I was a three-year-old child, I never wanted to be a pilot one day and then a firefighter the next day. I've always wanted to be. I don't know how that got into my head. It was there. But in high school, I realized that was stupid. Um, I didn't know anything about being a physician, um, and which is something you should really introspect. I was like, I introspected. And one day I made a list. I was like, what else could I do? You know, I don't really like, what if I don't like being a doctor? Like I'll go to college and then I, I don't like it. So what, what else am I going to do? And I, I put like a physics major as one of the things. And I put like, you know, going into business or something. And I realized I still kind of wanted to explore the, you know, medical field first and then see what that brought me to. So 
it's okay to like always have been interested but again you have to back that up with like actual experiences that you've had and the fact that you've explored the field so i shadowed i um i volunteered i did all the things that i needed to answer my question of do i want to go into medicine and why like what brings me to it i you know you have to look back and see why i want do i want to go into it and do i really even want to go into it like is this something i definitely want to do no matter how tough it is and for me the answer was yes so i decided to come to medical school i mean that's super interesting because i had like the opposite approach because i was like there's no way i'm becoming a doctor yeah so let me think about every other uh, like job opportunity or career or whatever and see if i like it because the, like doctor was literally like that's a no and then let me go down the list of other things right yeah. and what i realized was everything else didn't fu fulfill what i wanted yeah. and so i was like well i'm only left with doctor like <laughs> which is like the opposite of you which was like okay i want to be a doctor but let me see if there are any other options available. Exactly, exactly. And I think I think either way is perfectly fine. I don't see a problem. I yeah. think it just depends on like where you come from and everything. Yeah. Um, so you just that, have to put in the work and really like be able to thoroughly answer that question of why medicine and do I have what it takes and do I want to really do this? Yeah, so. like for yourself. Yes, Not, like, exactly. And like also when you're applying to medical school, I think it's a lot easier to write and be passionate when it's real. <laughs> like yeah. if you actually think like you yeah. really want to do this, like that's way better than just saying like, let me just put what sounds good or something, exactly. you know, in interviews and everything. But yeah. do I wanted to, uh, since we brought it up, the shadowing, um, I think this comes up a lot and it's all, I, I don't know. I've been told it's like a soft requirement, meaning like if you haven't done it, it's almost like you can't get into medical school, right? Um, how important was shadowing for you? And like maybe how many hours estimated did you do? And how did you, how, also, how did you get into um, shadowing? Uh, so that's actually an interesting question. So having been the first one in healthcare in my family and also being a first-generation immigrant, I, my family did not have the connections. We didn't know many, many or any really physicians here in America. Um, I didn't really have a lot of social capital to go off of. So the shadowing, I had emailed people at UF. I had emailed people and nothing. I just got, I didn't get replies and I was kind of stuck not knowing how to <laughs> shadow a physician. Um, the, re the way I found it was when I was volunteering for a, for a medical fair at my temple, I found a neurosurgeon who was there. And I was like, I asked him if, if he would be okay with me volunteering with him. And he said, yeah. And I started the paperwork and was able to volunteer with him. And to be honest, you asked, like, is shadowing important? First of all, getting to the shadowing part for me, was that was the tough part. So when I actually did get it, you know, I had to be there at six in the morning to shadow him. So I would be there at like 5.30, 5.45 to make sure I did not miss it. Because this was a hard-earned opportunity that I was not sure how many I was going to get after this. So if I didn't do well one day, I don't know if he would have been okay with me shadowing another day. So I really like worked hard. But during my time with him, I found, honestly, my perception of what a physician is changed a lot because 
I really didn't have a great idea of what a physician does from a physician standpoint. I'd seen what they do from a patient standpoint until that point. And I had seen some shows in which there were <laughs> doctors, but it was very different to be on the other side. And I don't know if day one, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. But I shadowed him a, like four days, I think four or five days over, over a couple weekends. Um, total of, I want to say 40, 50 hours. Uh, and after that, I was I just thought that he did procedures and he did all this stuff and it was really cool. And I just experienced the breadth of the field and as well as the fact that he was, you know, looking at x-rays and all of this stuff. It really drew me in. And I was like, okay, no, I like this. Um, so I think it answered one of my, like, it helped me answer one of the questions. Like, okay, if I was leaving, like, living this life in 10 years, would I be happy? And I thought I would I would really be happy to do what he was doing. Um, so that was one of the things. And you talked about a soft requirement. I thought it was a hard requirement, to be very honest. That Maybe you, it is. You, I don't know. I don't, again, <laughs> I don't know either. But I think everybody does it, but basically. Exactly. And if not shadowing, if you're scribing, it's the same thing. So even if you don't shadow specifically, if you're scribing, you get the same exact exposure that you would have if you had you shadowed, plus maybe even a little bit more. Um so I definitely think that everyone needs to do it if you're applying to medical school, first of all, for yourself, and second of all, for <laughs> to get into medical school as well. But in terms of hours, total shadowing, I've only shadowed that neurosurgeon, and then I found a primary care uh, special, uh, primary care in my area who let me shadow, and I shadowed him for 20 hours before I got bored out of my life and i was like i cannot do this so i i i did two or three days and i was like you know this has been great thank you and i was like that is not the type of physician i would ever become because and to be honest it's a different experience when you're shadowing just because you're standing there with no real knowledge of the medicine that goes on behind it but at the time, I was I I thought that that amount of shadowing for me was definitely enough. I, I understood what I needed to do. I understood what they do, and now I wanted to do I wanted to do something more active rather than just like watching someone for like hours on end. Yeah, I, I agree. Because shadowing, if you don't know, it's just following a physician around and just seeing what they do. Like you don't you're not clinically trained in anything, so you would just kind of watch them essentially. Um, and I think the value of it is to see what a physician's day-to-day -day life is like and what the various things they can do. You won't really understand anything that's going on. And I don't think it's really, you're really not going to learn much. I mean, you can learn some things like I still remember some things from shadowing that I learned, but for the most part, you just have, you haven't gone through medical school yet. You don't know like the, the information yet. Um, so for me, what I used or like, the way I treated it was I was, I was just like, if I was doing what this doctor was doing right now, would I enjoy it? Like I kind of put myself in their shoes and said like, is this what I can see myself doing? I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, on Reddit, I've seen a lot of threads and I've also heard of a lot of people talk, come in to ask me about shadowing and like, oh, they, they know so-and-so who did like a thousand plus hours of shadowing. How, 
likely do you think that someone needs that much shadowing to get into medical school or or the fact like do you even think that's helpful when you get above a certain threshold i don't think that's helpful uh, for me i did like a week and then with like one doctor then another week with a different doctor then like a few days with a different doctor and like that was it and so like and the reason i did that that way was so i could see different doctors and different specialties and um for me if i did any more than that i feel like it would have been a waste of time like because you're kind of just watching and, and you're not learning as much as just figuring out what it is they do day to day and i mean we were just talking to somebody with admissions from our faculty and they're like yeah i mean if you have it that's good but like if you have a thousand hours compared to i don't know 100 hours or something like it's not going to make much of a difference if anything it's like it's almost like i think he said most people have less than 100 hours right okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just I just don't think you need that many hours. I don't think it'll help you very much. And honestly, I mean, yeah, it, it does check the box, but it's it should be more for you to see what the the practice of medicine is like as a doctor. Plus, I think it takes time away from you doing something more active, such as volunteering or research, which kind of leads me into you know our next little segue into volunteering. Yeah, I mean, just in sorry before we get into volunteering i think like if you can shadow a bunch it's almost like you don't need to work as much because you're you're not making any money shadowing so it's it's almost like it could be that you don't have the time to shadow as much because you need to work to pay for school and everything and so having like a thousand hours as like a requirement just like in my opinion would, would almost it'd probably make it harder for like lower economic class applicants to get into medical school you know what i mean because that would be taking away time that they would need for like work or something yeah so i think you can still get the same experience with scribing and yeah. get paid so i think a lot of uh uh people kind of go that route if that's something that they're considering yeah yeah exactly i, I agree like because if you get paid to scribe you'd still see what the physician would do but you might you might want to you know do official like shadowing on the side as well um but anyway so i just wanted to mention that before we go to volunteering but um so for volunteering there's kind of two categories from what i've seen which is like clinical volunteering and then just general volunteering so this is something that's commonly mentioned clinical volunteering would be like you were at a nursing home you were in hospice you were at the hospital and so you got to see like the clinic and you got to, um, you know, actually see what patient care is like. Whereas um, another volunteering, like general volunteering would be like, you're at a homeless shelter or um, maybe like fundraising or something like that. Would you agree? No, I, I definitely agree. The one thing that I was told to distinguish clinical versus non-clinical volunteering was if you can smell a patient, you're, it's clinical that's just one thing because a lot of people ask like oh i'm volunteering at a hospice but i'm only just going to talk to the patients i'm not really actually participating in the their care that's okay that's still clinical volunteering that allows you to be a part of the volunteering team in that hospice center or if you're going to their home you may not be providing medical care which most of you will not be but that's totally okay that's still clinical volunteering because it allows you 
to be a part of that healthcare team as well as like see how they really work so versus a homeless shelter which you really won't get to be part of any of that so that's just the clinical versus non-clinical volunteering what do you think the importance of clinical volunteering is versus non-clinical do you think students should only be doing clinical volunteering or have a good mix or does it not matter if you have just non-clinical volunteering um i think a mix is probably the best um for clinical i think it helps you to kind of understand the um clinical aspects better <laughs> i mean that's kind of uh self-explanatory but like you get to see the hospital you get to see doctors and nurses and all these different um you know, medical personnel do their jobs and things similar to shadowing, except what I liked better about clinical volunteering was you got to do things. So like you got to interact with patients and see, okay, rather than me looking at a doctor, talk to these patients, I'm over here talking to a patient and interacting with them. And am I getting joy out of this? Do I like this? Do I find this valuable? Um, and then I think like non-clinical volunteering is just one, you should, I feel like you should just do it anyway, just for the sake of being a good person and helping out, you know, the society and your community and everything. But also like, I think it can show either leadership qualities, time management, and just that you care about your community and which are very important aspects of being a physician. Um, for me, I think what's most important for these is a lot of people will do clinical volunteering like once a week, twice a week, whatever, but they just will hate it. And it's like, and I've been in, positions as an undergrad where I did not like what I was doing and I changed those experiences to things that I liked more and I think that's really important is to do things that you enjoy and that you like um, and if you hate every single clinical experience you've ever had I mean that would also that probably would also help you make a decision if medicine's right for you but you'd really have to reflect on you know what it was you didn't like about those experiences. But I would say the biggest thing is do things that you care about and that you could talk about and that you could write about in your applications. And it shouldn't be to check off a box. It should be because you want to do it. And then it also helps you with applying to medical school. No, I definitely agree. Um, also, what do you think about building a theme for your application? I know we've mentioned this in a previous podcast as well, but like, if you're interested in something, what do you think about having just like an amalgamation of different volunteering experience? Like, oh, I volunteered at the homeless shelter. I, you know, did some hospice volunteering. I've done so-and-so. And they're all kind of random versus having some sort of a strong theme and like, oh, okay, I've done volunteering with immigrant homeless shelters. I've done volunteering with underserved clinics that serve the uh, immigrant population in this area. And I've also, also been involved in social education for the immigrant families. Like having some sort of a theme that ties your volunteering experiences together versus just having random ones. What, just what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think diversification is very good. Um, having a bunch of ex different experiences. If you only did like one thing or one type of thing, you're not gonna get the full breadth and you're not going to learn as much because you've always done that thing. So I think diversification is good, but also, you know, first off, if you really care about something, that's really good. Like I think go with that. So if you really care about like immigrants, like you were saying, yeah, keep going with that, that's awesome. And I think in the end that will benefit your application if you're like, this is something I really care about and this is something I put a lot of time into and, and passion into in a lot of um, different ways, you know? So 
but at the same time don't only do like one or two things like try to diversify for your own experience but also for your application as well okay um so in terms of like diversifying your experiences what do you think about the role of research in medical school applications because i know it's not a requirement hard requirement but that's also one an important experience i in my opinion at least that uh, any pre-medical student should have some level at least I've have at some level anyways. Yeah, I think it it'll probably help your application to do it from everything I've seen. It's not a hard requirement, but last statistic I read and I should bring this up, but um, I think it was like 95% of applicants have some sort of research experience and that doesn't mean that you have a publication it just means that you did something like research related, like a summer research project or something. For me, um, if I were to go back, I mean, I think it was valuable to me to understand how research works. And honestly, I didn't realize like how slow it is sometimes as well. And just also like for me, I wanted to understand if being a researcher was something I wanted to do or if I wanted to um, practice medicine and I found the clinic a lot or the clinical like field a lot more interesting than just doing research. So I think, and a lot of people go into medicine because they love like science and learning and all that stuff. So I think that's valuable too. And as physicians, we'll have to look at data all the time. Um, we have to read studies and all these things. And so I think that research is very valuable. Um, I would just choose it, <laughs> I would choose it wisely as an undergrad, um, I know a lot of undergrads that got like paid research positions or they were at very productive labs and they did maybe the same amount of work as somebody else, but they got a lot more out of it to show either on an application or just getting paid instead of doing it as like a volunteer process. So I would just do it wisely, but definitely I would recommend doing it. No, I definitely agree with that. If you're going to do research, try to aim for a lab that is productive because otherwise you may work hard, but you may not get a project. You may not, even if you get a project, you may not get your name on the project. Look at whether they publish medical students on their projects because- Or like undergraduate I, students. Yeah, under, sorry, undergraduate students. So look at whether they include students on their like published uh, manuscripts because some labs do not, which is very sad. and almost unethical because they've participated in that project and they have what you know somewhat of a say in what happened to the project so at least they should be included but not even not to even mention the ethics of it but you should kind of look into whether the lab that you're going into publishes quite a bit because if they have had one so i actually I, i'm laughing because i just had talked to an undergrad student who was kind of come to me for advice. She's applying uh, next year. And so she was thinking of doing a gap year with a research mentor. But then I looked at the research mentor and her research mentor has published two things in the past three years. And I said, maybe they're great projects, but I'm like, what are your chances that you're gonna be on 
a project by the end of your research year. And I'm like, if you're doing a free, like if you're doing a year and you're for research, you should really be pumping out numbers. Like if you're doing an entire year dedicated to research, you want to go to a lab that will get you a good amount of publications and also is someone who's most likely in healthcare or MD, a PhD type of person, because if they're solely PhD, they won't help you with the connections that you might need uh, when you apply to medical school. Because if someone's an MD, PhD, they went to a medical school, they went to a residency, they went to a, you know, they, they're working at a program and they have connections. So if you're working with MDs or MD, PhDs, it will help your application quite a bit because when you apply, they can call people for you. They can write you. I mean, the PhD can write you a letter of recommendation as well. But if it's an MD, PhD, they know what admissions are looking for. And as I said, if they go to a, if they went to a specific medical school and that medical school sees like, oh, you know, our one of our students who's an MD, PhD wrote them this letter, then they're going to definitely take that more seriously, I would say. And plus, it kind of allows you to see the role of a physician who's also a researcher if you work with uh, MDs. Even if they're not PhDs, a lot of MDs are doing research nowadays as well. So if you're working in such labs, it's great. I worked personally in the lab of an MD, PhD, and you can even shadow them. You can ask to shadow them if they're still practicing. Uh, so it's great because I, I saw like translational research. So research that goes from basic science and is taken to actual trials as well uh, to be made into something that is brought to the patients ultimately. So again, I don't think you need to be doing medical research. You can do research in any field, chemistry, physics. Uh, you can do research on bees for all anyone cares for medical school applications. They just want to know that you know the, the process, the research method, um, how to actually interpret data, and just basic critical thinking skills that are needed to really be a good researcher um, are actually translated well into becoming a good physician as well. So they just want to see that. But I'm just saying for your personal growth, if it is an MD-PhD lab, you might benefit from other things that they can bring besides the re research. Plus, you want to go to a lab that's productive because you, if you can, getting a publication would be great. If not, poster presentations are also fine. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of the things you said are great, and, and I totally agree with them, like finding an MD, PhD, or somebody that would be a productive research lab. I think that's way easier said than done. Though. That is true. It is very hard to get. Um, but I think it's worth the time and effort to find the best lab that you can that would work best for you, especially if you're working for free. Like if you're volunteering as a researcher, I mean, it's you're literally free labor, right? Like, and you're just trying to get an experience to put on your resume or just for you to learn. Um, I think sometimes undergraduate students as researchers get taken advantage of. And I think that it's worth your time to value yourself. You know, um, I remember reaching out for research as an undergrad and I went, I think I went to like the undergraduate research center or something. And they were like, yeah, I would recommend sending out 10 emails seven people ignore you two people will say no and one person's going to say yes and i sent out 10 emails and it was pretty accurate about seven people ignored me two people said no and then one person said yes and so 
again, it's really hard to find research, but I would um, be careful to pick that, pick your lab. And the other thing is, um, if I were to go back, I didn't know to ask this first off, but I also was kind of like, felt that it wasn't appropriate to ask. But if I were to go back, I would ask when, right day one, either if you're interviewing or if you're just learning about the lab, how productive is your lab? And what type of paper will I be on? What's the authorship that will happen from my work? Like, will I be an author on this paper at the end of it? Am I gonna be last author, first author, all that stuff? And I would just get it established right from the beginning. So I will say um, there is a caveat to that. So depending on your research experience or if you have any experience. So when I joined my lab, um, first of all, I had reached out to a bunch of people. But uh, as Nick said, you know, most of them ignore you. I got a couple no's and I got one or two yeses. But for the future, they said, I don't have a project right now. I will have a project in six months that you can assist with. But, and since you came, you know, like, we'll, like we'll definitely take you. But again, that's like, that's a future project. It, it may take three or six months to get started. Once it is, we'll, we'll reach out to you. So I didn't find anything in the short term. So what I ended up doing was just, I, I reached out to professors. I reached out to, uh, I kind of just wore a nice shirt and tie um, took my resume with me and started going to labs at University of Florida. I just did that for two days and I found a research lab that, uh, you know, uh, I actually found one of the administrative people at one of McKnight Brain Institute, um, which is one of the research centers at University of Florida. And she said, oh, I actually know someone who's uh, looking for a research, uh, who, who would be willing to take an undergrad research assistant um, not a paid position of course but she said yeah and she reached out to her to the lab manager and the lab manager contacted me and said like give me your per, uh, cv and fill out this application and uh we'll see you in a week for an interview so we saw the interview so at the time i had zero experience in research i was also not a third or fourth year uh, undergrad student with a lot of classes under my belt. I had like, basic biology and chemistry. Uh, I hadn't even taken genetics at the point, which was a big deal for my lab in, in particular. I didn't have a skill set. So, you know, they told me like, hey, in the beginning, you're just going to be helping like clean things and helping people and you know they'll teach you different techniques like pcr and things like that but in the beginning you're just going to be like helping to clean some stuff and you're going to be helping to you know like people with their projects if they ask you to so at that time i don't think it would have been appropriate for me to say like oh what project am i going to get in i think it would have been more appropriate to ask hey you know what's the fastest way for me to uh, progress in this lab, get the skills that I need so that I can have, you know, a project that I can work on. Maybe it's not my first author, but something that I can work on and something that I can get published in. But some, depending on your level of experience, it may or may not be feasible to get a project directly, especially if you have no experience. So in my case, at least, uh, I just, you know, started going to lab meetings started learning how to actually read the literature, 
started helping people in their projects and learning the different techniques. And then after I did that for a little too long, I, I actually got a project of my own with, you know, mice and having to do a lot of elaborate things. So it, it kind of does depend on your situation. Keep that in mind, but definitely be clear about the fact that you would like to work on a project that even if you're not first author, that you have ownership of. And the fact that you are hoping to get published whenever that if that project gets published. Yeah, I think that's that's great. I mean, and I, I don't mean like expect to start day one and like get an authorship yeah. in a month. That's not at all what I meant by that. What I meant is like. At the very least, they can say, you know, you have no experience. You don't know what you're doing. Get started and then talk to me back in a few months like they kind of did to you. And I think that's great because now at least you have a pathway towards something valuable right like it's not just like eh you're just gonna work in the lab and we'll figure it out it's like no come back to me in a few months or when a project comes up or whatever and i wish i did that more as an undergraduate student like okay maybe right now i don't have anything but in a few months like what what do you think or when when will when do students who start the way i started usually get a project or something like that i would just go right from the beginning to say like what's my trajectory here um anything else about research i think we we covered it really well i think even if you're not interested in research just do a, even a summer project or like a summer program or something short term even if you're not interested in research because it is important to be able to utilize it in medical school as well as residency and beyond so to have some sort of experience with it is great and i think if you you might be surprised that the fact that you like it because when i once i started research i loved basic science research and i even considered going down the md phd pathway but it was just too long for what i wanted to do and i just thought that if i wanted to do research i could still do it as an md but again you might be surprised at the fact that you might really enjoy it um so i think that's great for the research one thing i really did want to discuss and it's very interesting topic, uh, maybe even controversial, which is why I'm also going to preface this by saying this is just our experiences. This is not based on data. This is based on anecdotal experience from me, my friends, Nick, and his the people had, that he's had uh, interactions with. So these are just personal opinions, and these are not facts by any means. So take them with a grain of salt. But I wanted to discuss how to choose between going to an MD school versus a DO school versus going to an international or a Caribbean school and how to kind of like navigate that. So Nick, do you have any uh, comments initially about that? Yeah, so I'm actually bringing it up right now. I wanted just, you know, I wanted to bring up some data about the match rate. Um, and the reason for this is I want to just, you know, if any pre-med student is listening, just let you know, like, what it means when you're graduating medical school, like, because everybody needs to match to a residency in order to practice medicine and get board certified. So I just wanted to kind of bring up that information to say, like, this is the differences at the end of graduating, you know, an MD, DO versus an, like, a international Caribbean graduate student. 
So, no, it, I definitely agree, and it, it's going to be great to have the data. So I'm just going to start off with saying the differences between an MD and a DO. So Nova Southeastern University is one of the, I don't know, few or only, but uh, we like have... one or two other ones, I think. Yes, so I, I think we're one of the few people who can say that we go to a school that both has an MD school and a DO component as well. Although they are separate schools, we do see the DO students quite more often than you would at any other medical school, um, just because you, they would not be on the same campus. So we've interacted with them quite a bit. You know, we talk to them about uh, how their classes are like and how they compare to ours, what their experiences are like. And I have very close friends in the DO program as well. And I think Nick also has made friends in the DO program. Um, I also have friends who have uh, who are attending DO schools at other institutions um, in Florida as well as out of Florida. So I just kind of wanted to say that the MD versus DO difference is really not that large. Um, the um, The content that we learn is similar, if not exactly the same, because we both prepare for board exams. Um, MD students have to take USMLE step one and step two before applying to medical school. And DO students have to take COMLEX one and COMLEX two uh, before applying to medical school. The exam content- For residency. Yeah, for residency. So um, the content of those exams are essentially the same. And a lot of DO students actually end up taking step one and step two because they want to be extra competitive for residency and a lot of programs don't know how to interpret complex one or two scores or maybe biased against them. So they, they want to just see how those students compare with on the step one and step two scale so that they can compare everyone MD and DO alike. So a lot of students do end up taking step one or step two, even if they're in DO. So that's one difference, the exams that we take. But again, as I said, the content is essentially the same. The information that we learn for microbiology is not going to be different if you go to a DO school versus if you go to an MD school. A lot of the resources we use to study, not a lot. I think essentially all the resources we use to study are the same, aside from the fact that their lectures are different than the lectures are we have just because we have different faculty members. So... I, and I think that's at any school you go to, you're going to have different lecturers. So that's one aspect. The, uh, the one big difference that exists in the DO school is the fact that they have osteopathic manipulation techniques. Um, ne neither of us is an expert in that or have any sort of proficiency to be able to tell you in detail about uh, osteopathic manipulation techniques. But I will say the DO students have a class on that and they're taught um, about this technique and how to perform it for uh, patients and how to benefit it. Um, I can't speak to the efficacy of it, uh, nor can I speak to the how hard it is to learn, uh, but I do know that it will take some extra time from your school, like from your schooling. So you're learning all the same things that an MD student is learning, but you also have to spend time on doing this osteopathic manipulation technique. So I will say you will have a little bit less time 
to do extracurricular because you will also have this extra component that you need to kind of focus on. So our schools uh, focus a little bit more on research opportunities that you can get. So I think we are afforded a little bit more time in because we don't have that extra component. So that's just one uh, difference. So the osteopathic manipulation technique. And I will say that in practice, um, from what I've seen and what I've heard, very few DO students actually go on to use osteopathic manipulation techniques in their practice, e even if they're in primary care. Uh, you can bill for it. So if you're a DO and you've, you're trained in uh, OMM, um, you can, or OPP, I, I, I think it's OPP. So if you, then you can bill for that when you're practicing if you actually use those techniques to help your patients. Now, only a few DOs actually end up doing it. One of the reasons being that if you go to a residency that only has MD faculty, or for the most part, MD faculty, how are they going to teach you about this stuff? Because they don't, they've never learned it, so they won't be able to teach you any of this. Or if you go to a faculty that you have DO faculty, but they don't actually use it in their practice, they also similarly won't really be able to teach you. So you learned it in medical school, and then the, your really formative years in residency, which is when you're learning how to practice as an independent physician, you were never really like enforced again to really do this. Um, it, it becomes really hard for you to keep it in your practice. I do know that there are, there's like a residency or a fellowship that you can do just for OPP. So, or how to integrate that into practice. But I don't know how common that is. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind when you're doing MD versus DO. Um, and then kind of talking about the stigma, Nick, did you, were you able to kind of pull up the data? Yeah, I'm so not. I'm just going to do the overall match rate because I'm not going to go through every single uh, specialty. Yes. But basically, if you look at like the PGY1 matches from, this is the uh, NRMP releases, the residency match data. Um, the match rate for a U.S. MD senior, and this means a fourth-year medical student who's in a U.S.-based uh, MD program applying for residency, the match rate is 92.9%. For a U.S. DO senior, same thing, fourth-year student in a, uh, a DO, U.S.-based program, applying to residency, the match rate is 91.3%, which is, like, slightly lower than USMD senior. And then if you look at U.S. IMG, which means you're a U.S. citizen, but you go to an international medical school, so commonly, like, the Caribbean, um, the match rate is 61.4%, which is a lot lower. And so if you're just looking at this data and want to interpret it, to me, it means that if you go to the Caribbean or an international school, it's not US-based, you're going to have a harder time matching into residency. With that being said as well, individual specialties, some of them, are majority US MD graduates who go into those um, specialties. Some have like very few DOs, very few IMGs that go into those. Generally, those are like more competitive specialties like uh, specialized surgery programs, whereas primary care like internal medicine and family medicine, those tend to be more friendly for DO applicants as well as IMG applicants. Um, but 
again, at the end of the day, you're graduating, you need to go into a residency. And so I would just say, keep in mind this residency data. And I would even look at this as a pre-med student in order to help you determine what school is best for you as well. What do you, do you, do you agree with me and what I'm saying? So I, I definitely agree with you in that if you go to a DO school, you apply for the same residencies that we uh, MD students apply to as well. The residencies now being merged, there aren't really MD versus like DO re different residencies. Everyone applies to the same match. Everyone applies to the same program. Now, there are programs that have preferences for MDs. There are pro programs that actually have preferences for DOs um, and that have been traditionally DO um, friendly hospitals. I will say, I will also say that Nick kind of talked a little bit about the different specialities and different, uh, like competitiveness for different specialities. So for example, I had initial, uh, I had an initial interest in neurosurgery. And when I had applied at the time for medical school, I would not have gone to a DO school just because when I had applied, I'd looked at the data to see what the chances of matching as a DO were. And it was very disheartening to see that there were only, at the time, there were only two or three DO students who matched for a neurosurgery residency out of the, I want to say 200 something seats that were available in the US. So I just thought that if I go, if I went into a DO school that I would almost certainly be unable to match into neurosurgery. Um, not to say that it's impossible, but it's just an uphill battle on top of an uphill battle. So now, however, the stigma is lessening. I will say it's still there. Um, but this past 2022 data shows that, or yes, 2022 data shows that nine out of 17 DO students matched into neurosurgery, which is a fantastic number. Yeah, it's, it's improved over the years. Yeah, it has definitely improved. But 9 out of 17, that's a little bit over 50%. Now, if you look at the USMD seniors who matched into neurosurgery, that's 174 out of 230 students. So that's quite a bit higher match rate compared to when you look at the... Um, USDO seniors. Yeah, it's like 75%. Exactly. So 75 versus like 50 something percent, that's a huge discrepancy. And that discrepancy exists on a lot of competitive fields. So if you're considering going into those, I'm not saying you can't go into a DO school and match uh, into a competitive specialty, but just know that it will be a tougher battle when you get here. I think that also applies for like USIMGs as well, right? Yes, and for we the US, we didn't bring up the data on that, but it's th it's the same. I mean, it's lower. It's so USIMGs. It's it's not even an uphill battle. You're fighting it, all odds at that point, especially if you want to go into a competitive specialty. So even USIMGs, which are oftentimes seen more favorably than uh, non-US IMGs. So US IMGs would be um, people that have gone to Caribbean medical school for the most part and that have done their clinical rotations in the US, uh, which is how it typically works out. 
so I know you, you kind of said uh, the overall match data, but one of the biggest things that the Caribbean schools don't advertise is that they'll, they'll talk about their match rate and they'll put that like, oh, we have a 90 so-and-so percent match rate, which is great. So if, if any school has a 90 plus percent match rate, that's fantastic. But they won't talk about how many students actually graduated from when they were admitted. So if you had an initial class of 500, but then you only allowed 100 of those students to be able to apply for residency and the 90 of them matched, you can say that, oh, oh we have a 90% match rate, but you had a very high attrition rate. So only like one out of five of your students even got to the point where they were able to apply. So that doesn't speak good about the school itself. Now we don't have the data and I don't think it's available for anyone um, because the, those schools, they, the schools don't really make it public. I know most USMD schools have to make that public in some way, shape or form. Um, I know our schools, uh, you can kind of figure it out if just by looking at how many students were accepted and then how many students are actually graduating. So for most schools in the U.S., you can figure that data out if you really wanted to just by looking at how many students they take. Um, it's publicly available data for the most part. Um, but for Caribbean schools, if you're thinking about attending them, I would really consider it well in advance because I've had some students who come up to me and said that they don't want to go to a DO school because they want an MD after their name even though the USMD and the DO match rates are very similar they they are unaware of that information but they, they want the MD and so they are willing to go to the Caribbean rather than apply for a DO school uh for which they would be competitive. So they've, they've tried applying for MD and for the next year, for the following year, instead of applying MD as well as DO, um, they want to just apply for a U.S. Uh, I, uh, Caribbean school and get the MD after their name. So I, I've kind of explained to two students already in the past three months about how going to a DO school would definitely be something that would align more closely with their goals compared to going to a Caribbean school. Again, I have had residents who went to Caribbean schools and they're fantastic residents. I've had residents who are DOs and MDs and they've been fantastic residents. It usually depends on the person rather than where they went. Um, you can make the most out of wherever you go, but I think you should really prioritize going to an institution that will prioritize trying to get you out to becoming a physician rather than an institution that has a high history of attrition rate, like a high attrition rate. And you can be great and make it out. You can be one of those people that make it out of the other side. But consider the fact that if you do not make it out the other side, Caribbean medical schools are expensive. $100,000 per year is not unheard of in Caribbean medical schools. I, one of my friends is, you know, his tuition is uh, approximately that. And if he does not make it out of all of those four years, if he goes to second year and then does not uh, come out the other side, he's $200,000 in debt with the interest going on. And 
no ability to really pay it back. So just can keep that in mind when you are applying for any school that you really have to make it out. And is this an institution where their priority is to make you a physician or is their priority something else such as making money or something uh, or just having a really high match rate? Um, so keep that in mind. Now, I will say this. Uh, one other thing that I've noticed um, from, you know, interaction with my friend, friends at, at other schools. So I have a friend who is at a Caribbean school. And th again, I don't know how common this is, but his graduation date is going to be pushed back one year because they could not find a hospital rotation for him. So he did everything in their timeline. Um, he finished step one after his second year currently, and he, he passed because now it's pass-fail. And they just don't have a clinical rotation for him ready right now. So they said, like, it's a, on a, a you know, first-come, first-served basis, and they, the, he's going to start it in December. So if he starts third year in December, he won't be able to finish all of his requirements by the time that match would have happened and then by the time you would have like started a residency so he's going to have to do an additional year of medical school to really complete all the requirements so instead of graduating in four years he's going to be graduating in five years even though he did everything according to their timeline so he didn't he wasn't failing step one and then had to retake it after a couple months and that caused the delay. He stuck to their timeline and he did, he took it within their timeline. He passed, did everything, but they just don't have spots for him. So he's going to have to delay his graduation by one year. So now that same scenario, I would be very like, I, I, I would not really believe that there's a high chance of that happening in a, at an MD school. I think there would be a riot if that happened to any of our schools. What do you think, Nick? Um, yeah, I mean, in summary, I would just say when you're applying to a school um, and you're looking maybe at a Caribbean school or an osteopathic school or U.S. allopathic school, the USMD school, I would just, you know, this is going to be one, a lot of your time, four years of your time, and also probably the if not the biggest purchase, one of the biggest purchases you'll make in your life. Uh, if you think about it like $50,000 a year, just, you know, try to gather as much information about it and make the best choice for yourself. And that's what I would say, you know, and talk to people, try to reach out to people, go to the different schools and just learn about them. Um, and I'd also want to say that I've worked with physicians, atten attending physicians, as well as residents who've graduated from USMD schools, DO schools, and Caribbean schools, um, international schools, and I've worked with some amazing physicians from every single um, background in education. And so, you know, that's just playing a little devil's advocate as well is that a lot of the ones who make it through are still at like absolutely incredible physicians. So, and again, I agree. The ones, it, again, I think it depends on the person, but I just hope that students can go to places that want them to really succeed and places that in which most students succeed rather than that being something that's not really guaranteed. It, guarantee, success is not guaranteed anywhere, but for example, our school, I think we have an attrition rate of one 
student, maybe two, like out of 50 something students, I think at least 49, like for the charter class, I think they had at least a 95 plus percent ma like rate of going through. So the students that, you know, started it first year and then they're going to go through. So mostly everyone is, you know, now in a residency. Uh, some people are deciding to take a research year because they want to do a competitive residency. And that's totally fine. But they weren't held back. And some students, like, there's always going to be one or two students that are held back uh, for whatever reason. But again, our school really tries to help all the students get from point A to residency. And I think that as a student, that should be one of the things you look for in a school. Like, is the school, does the school care about the fact that I make it to residency or do they just want my tuition money? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's four years of your life. It's already hard. Like, yeah. it's already difficult. You, you want a school that can support you. Um, and I would even go to say that if it's easier to get into one school over another and maybe you need another year or two to polish your resume a little bit or take the MCAT again or maybe do a postgraduate degree or something to improve your grades. Looking back, if, if, you know, if I was in a position as a pre-med student and I, w I would definitely take that opportunity to put another one to two years in before getting into medical school if it meant that I could go to a medical school that supported me more and that had like better match rates and things like that. Would you agree? No, I, I would definitely agree. Again, like a 95% 90, match rate versus a 97% match rate, I would not care. Right. But, but somewhat but like, like a, a big difference like the ones we've discussed, um, I would 100% agree. Like if there's like a big attrition the, yeah. rate, like at a particular school and that's the only place I can go, I, I would rather uh, take that gap year and polish my application to go to a school that actually cares about my success. And to be honest, I mean, I think if you're a student who can make it through medical school, you're a student who can polish your resume, like just being completely positive about this, like you can do it, you know, like you can go back and, and improve your grades, improve your MCAT, especially like if you're going to be somebody who's going to be a doctor, I think you're able to improve your application and do better. And if you're in undergrad, you know, struggling a little bit, you want to go to medical school, like you could do it. I really do think that. And I think it's worth it to put in that, that, um, that work earlier rather than later when you're in medical school. I think that kind of concludes everything that I wanted to say. I, you know, I agree with the points that we've talked about and the things you just mentioned right now. So do you have anything, any closing remarks? No, I think that's it. But thank you for listening to the Sink or Swim podcast. My name's Nick. And I'm Vikram. And I hope have you have a good rest of your day.